Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing and creativity amongst life's many other demands. Hello, today I have with me Claire Fuller, who is the author of four novels. Um, her debut, Our Endless Numbers, Number Days, was the winner of the Desmond Elliott Prize for Debut Fiction. Um, she also wrote Bitter Orange, Swim Lessons, and her latest, Unsettled Ground, is currently shortlisted for the Women's Prize. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I'm going to put it out there right now. The Unsettled Ground, I think, is... I mean, it's bold. It's only July. I'm going to say it's it's definitely one of my top reads of the year, for oh. sure. <laughs> <Thank you>. <laughs> <laughs> I've just absolutely loved it so much. And let's start there. Let's start with Unsettled Ground. Um, it's the story of, of twins in the early 50s who, at the very beginning of the novel, have a very, the very sudden loss of their mother, who they live with, and their world is, is completely turned upside down. And uh, Jeannie herself... Um, is just the most incredible protagonist. I completely and utterly fell in love with her. Have you had other people saying that as well? Yeah, they. I think they have all, all fallen in love with her and also just had so much sympathy for the situation that she finds herself in um, and, you know, kind of want to equally fight for her and kind of shake her by the shoulders and say don't do that don't do it <laughs> um, because she does make some some mistakes that the reader can absolutely see are mistakes but she doesn't really understand um, so yeah I, I've had a lot of lovely readers saying that they've completely fallen for her which is just great she's I was just, I was wondering when I was reading it, was, was she where, was it Jeannie where you began with the story? Was she the colonel that started it or did it begin somewhere else? Well, she kind of was because usually, and as is the case with Unsettled Ground, my books start with a person in a place. So in a way it was the place that came first. Mm. So without giving too much away, there's a, there's a situation in the middle of the book where Jeannie has to go and live in a caravan in the woods. And it was the caravan in the woods that was the starting point because my son discovered one in the woods quite near to where I live. Mm. And he knows that I like kind of weird places. So this caravan had been abandoned. Someone had clearly been living in it, but he said, you've got to come out, you've got to come out and see this place, mum. You'll, you'll just love it. I know you'll love it, even though it's really weird. Um, and it was very, very atmospheric, um, a very kind of sad place, really. Uh, somebody had clearly been living there, had left some, you know, discarded belongings. It was overgrown. It was very smelly. But it just started making me think, who, who lived here? How did they manage? What in their life took them to this place? Mm. And, and after they left, what happened then? You know, did their life get better did it improve did it carry on going downhill and and so that genie was created in my head really as the person who lived in this place but I go back in the novel so the novel doesn't start there it starts much earlier than than that point yeah that and I think the, start. the thing that really struck me right from early on was that um I found myself making all sorts of assumptions about Jeannie and about her situation, about her mother, who um, it isn't a spoiler to say she dies. It happens in the first, first yeah. few pages, doesn't it? Um, about, about her brother, Julius. There's so many assumptions I find myself making based on who they are and where they live. And, um, and they, they, 
it keeps it kept getting turned around and that's what I loved she kept surprising me she kept making mistakes like you say but also really surprising me with her resourcefulness and how she manages in this really quite um quite tragic situation that they find themselves in um and so is the the pot that the other thing I think that was so interesting is particularly about the sense of place was that we don't really see and hear much about rural poverty um and that to me was was very very interesting because because often we have this quite bucolic view of of English countryside and it is a very English place they're in they're in, they're in Wiltshire I believe right? yes yeah. yeah that's right um and there's such a gentleness particularly for me as an outsider to this country although I have lived here for a very long time the word Wiltshire and the idea of being west um has such a romanticized idea and I think what you do here in this place is really unpick some of that romanticism and even in a way um juxtapose some of those little bits even within the village you know like the quite posh village shop that they stock vegetables for and things um juxtapose with the way that they live their lives as people growing those vegetables yeah, I didn't set out to do that deliberately. It was just that was the situation that I found Jeannie in. And, and I knew that life was going to be difficult for her and 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 hard. And they they her and her brother and her mother are poor. Um they 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 get by kind of hand to mouth by growing vegetables and Julia's doing some odd jobs. But I really, once I understood that they were in that situation, I started researching um, rural poverty. And although the, I found lots of kind of government papers about it, you know, about how many post boxes and telephone boxes are going and you know how many libraries are being closed and and bus services being discontinued I really struggled to find anything that related to actual individuals and the effect on them and I certainly couldn't find any contemporary fiction about them at all either I don't want to lump everybody together the rural poor yeah. but but um there, there just didn't seem to be any stories about people who live in this way or have to live in this way. It all seems to be about urban poverty. And obviously, that's perhaps that affects more people. But I thought it was quite a, an interesting story to tell about uh, living, living in the English countryside when we do see as, as outsiders who don't live in the countryside kind of see it as an idyll. We drive past those chocolate box villages and, and the um, thatched cottages and we think how beautiful it looks. But the reality is not mm. is clearly not always like that. No, and a lot of access problems, which I found so interesting that you that that came up a number of times in the book, because as, some, as a family with a disabled family member, we come up against access problems all the time in the city that a lot of people don't come up against. But it's so interesting to look at access problems outside of the city and how much just being remote can add additional challenges when you're poor. Yeah. And if you don't have any of your own transport, mm. it's, it's almost impossible. You know, if you can't find a job nearby, you really very very difficult to rely on public transport to to get you anywhere at the right kind of time you know a bus yeah. might go to the nearest town once a day and arrive there at kind of midday you can't you can't rely on that 
very easily uh, for work. And so it affects everything. And Jeannie and Julius don't have a bank account because there's no way for them to open a bank account in the village. They don't have access to technology. Um, they don't they don't have a computer. They don't have the Internet. They can't get on a bus to go to the nearest town to open a, a, a bank account. It, it all everything becomes very very difficult for them yeah um so I, I i kind of also i guess deliberately put things in their way to make life harder for them <laughs> I, I was quite mean um but but i think you're right that Jeannie is very resourceful and and i hope you know by the end of the book readers can see that she has enough strength to kind of start to sort things out for herself I know I really feel like I felt it was such a hopeful book in fact really really hopeful I loved that about that that's um I love books that um that that challenge me and make me look at something I haven't maybe looked at very closely but also give me the sense of hope and I definitely felt that with Jeannie very much so um but also um you know there's also lots of moments of a lot of joy actually scattered throughout and um one that I was really interested to ask you about was the music um and is there is there some particular music that you were listening to that inspired um Julius and Jeannie's music that that comes up um at some point and I guess around in the middle of the book when they start when you start hearing more about them playing music yeah yeah that there was i do listen to music while i write and that does end up influencing the books usually <laughs> um and so so Jeannie and julius are folk musicians and and Jeannie plays the guitar and julius plays their fit the fiddle and their mother when she was alive played the banjo and their father the piano so they but but they were very uh insular you know they 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 played at home and they weren't used to playing in in public but um yeah so i listened to two pieces of music and normally i try to find at least a whole album or or an artist's whole work because you know books as you know take take years yeah. and to listen to a very limited amount can kind of drive you a little bit mad but i did only listen to two two tracks mm -hmm. so the the first uh was a song an old english folk song called polly vaughan um and i listened to the version sung by tia blake which people can go and find on um youtube if they want to have a listen oh we'll put a link to that in the, uh, yeah. in the show notes and then i also listened to a song by my son henry ailing who's uh, a folk musician um, he plays the guitar, finger-picking guitar, and the most of the time that I was writing the book, he was living here at home. And um, he, he, when he wasn't working, he all he does is play his guitar. Wow. You know, it's kind of twelve hours a day if he possibly can. And so it it did kind of seep in, I think. And and he would write a new song, and he would come into my room and say, "Listen to this, Mum. What do you think about this?" And we would discuss the lyrics, and and I would watch him play. So um, having Jeannie play the guitar. And, and how she does it was was very much an, uh, Henry's influence, I think. Mm. Um, and so those two songs, Polly Vaughan and Henry's song, We Roam Through the Garden, both come back again and again in in the book. And Jeannie and Julius play those songs. And they also have quite a strong meaning within the story of the book, mm. um, because 
well, I better not say what what happens <laughs> in the, what happens in the songs because maybe it would kind of give something away with what happens in the book. But yeah. But um, so when you're writing, if you were sitting down to write, would you would you put on some music if you were know you were going to um, tackle a particular scene to kind of get you in the mood? Do you use it in that way? Oh, I just have it on whenever I write. It's oh, not really on a loop. Yes, on a loop, on a loop ah. for two years, three years on a loop <laughs> round and round and round and so I no longer really hear the lyrics I almost no longer hear the music but it somehow mm. informs the tone of what I'm writing yeah. um that's so interesting you know, it almost acts like a it's like a, a shortcut I suppose right like in your brain it's like when you smell something in particular you know that something's going to happen but if you once you put this music on it's like your brain goes into into unsettled ground yeah, into writing mode. It's another way of stopping me procrastinating, because, <laughs> which is why I do an awful lot. Um, so I try, you know, I put the music on and after, you know, after six months or something, my brain starts saying, oh, that means it's writing time. Um, Brilliant. And have so, you done this with every one of your novels? I have, yes, except the one I'm writing now doesn't seem, I, I've never found the right piece of music for it. And so I don't always listen to music when I'm writing the one I'm writing now. And weirdly, of all f all the four books that I that have been published, music is within them. But this fifth one, music isn't. So, so maybe the book is telling yeah. you to just yeah. have a bit of silence. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, that. Yeah, I guess it is. And it is quite a silent book. That's really interesting. Gosh, that is Not really interesting. That. And also, book number five for that to happen after following this routine for quite a number of books now that's so interesting that it's changed yeah, yeah but now I don't have that procrastination technique so it's taking much longer as well because I'm not and sitting I, down to write I can kind much. of imagine this year in itself has been a bit of a distraction like in terms of publishing Unsettled Ground to you know huge acclaim being long listed and now shortlisted for the women's prize I can imagine you're quite busy with a lot of things anyway and a lot of people wanting to talk to you and a lot of people wanting to talk about it has that made writing this next novel challenging as well it's it's definitely slowed it down and I've I've had to take you know a couple of months off writing at all in order to do all those things there have been so many things to do which is wonderful I'm absolutely not complaining about it but my plan has always been to finish the first draft of the next book before the previous book is published yes and normally I hit that deadline it's a deadline that I set myself my publishers don't set it um, but this time I haven't so I'm I think I'm about 70,000 words into the next book of the first draft and maybe I've got another 20,000 or so to go I'm not sure um so yeah it didn't really work this time <laughs> but that's interesting isn't it it's like it's almost like I guess each book is slightly telling you how to write it then it's not that you're going in with a rigid idea of how you're going to approach it this it's this has happened naturally yeah yeah I think so I mean I, I always start in the same way because that's the only way I know but sometimes you, I think you're right the book will take on a, a life of its own and and will only be written in a certain way and so this one you know I've because I've had to stop for a couple of months and because there isn't any music maybe it is turning into a, a different kind of book 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't actually question it too much because I think if I look too deeply at how it works, then it will almost kind of be scared off or something. Yeah, I have to I mean, kind of approach it from the corner of my eye. And you can trust it yes. as well. You can trust the process. It's, it's proving that you, if you trust it, it will take you where you need to go. Um, which I can definitely say unsettled ground. I mean, it's so phenomenal um, that whatever the process was for getting you there, you can definitely trust it. <laughs> but can I take you back now to early on in your career? Because this is not your first career. As with many novelists, you've had previous careers. And you began as a visual artist. I did, yeah. My first degree was in sculpture uh, at Winchester School of Arts. And I had a year after that, that was in the 1980s, uh, had a year after that sculpting. But I think being a sculptor, it's even harder to make a living than being a novelist. <laughs> so, so I very quickly had to go out and get a proper job, if you like. But, but in, the, in the intervening years, I did carry on sculpting stone carving wood carving and also drawing and I had a few exhibitions but it it, it kind of had to be a hobby really I was mm. never going to be able to make my living from it um, and and once I started writing which was about the age of 40 when I started writing short stories um, since then the the art creation has really tailed off I just haven't felt the urge that's so interesting you know um, both Ali and I come from a visual art background as well. And to both of us, Ali's um, a designer, a visual designer, and I'm a photographer. And it's funny because both of us have had people say to us, oh, that's a bit weird that you went from one to the other. And for us, it makes complete sense. And exactly the same thing has happened for both of us. Once we switch to another art form, I still actually am a photographer. That's how I make um, a lot of my living. But in terms of my the, the need, it's fulfilling. It's like I'm switching tax, but it it's all, as far as I'm concerned, storytelling. It's just using different mediums um, and it, it doesn't maybe look like storytelling on the outside to other people, but, um, but it's what it feels like on the inside. Do you ever, did you ever feel like that about visual art, that it felt like uh, you were... I don't know about storytelling, but it's just about creating. It still feels mm. like I am creating. I am creating an, uh, an object, actually. Um, and I think it's... A, a kind of more, a deeper, more intense object than a piece of sculpture, which, you know, maybe you might, somebody might look at for five minutes, if I'm lucky, but a book, it's, it's such an odd thing to, to create something in my room, to have it published, and then for it to be recreated in someone else's head, someone mm. that I don't know on the other side of the world. I, uh, that still kind of blows my mind it's that magic that isn't it, it it's is. absolute magic yeah. so it's not so much about storytelling I'm not sure I felt I was storytelling when I was creating uh, my sculptures it was about creating an object that could be accessed by someone else which I guess I'm, I'm still doing mm. um, and then so aside from the novel writing um, you also do a bit of teaching as well um, and if people we're interested because I think you do quite you do a different events peppered as well throughout the year at festivals in different places um but you is there is there somewhere that you regularly teach or is it do you try and not um commit too much to that side 
So yeah, you I, I kind of pick and choose. People approach me and I say yes or no, depending on what's going on. Um, I, I've, I've taught once on uh, an Arvon course and I've got another course coming up in December at the Hearst. Um, so if anybody wants to kind of look that up and Arvon courses are absolutely wonderful for the teachers and for the students, I think. Um, and then people can go to my website and there's an events page and that kind of shows where I'm teaching. And I do. Yeah, it's not it's not a regular gig for me, really. It's it's little bits here and there. Yeah. And so um, becoming a novelist, um, was it something that you felt like that you would do eventually? Is it something you kind of thought in the back of your mind when you were younger, oh, this is something I'd like to try sometime? Or was there a moment of which you thought, actually, I'm just going to try working in a completely, creating in a completely new medium? It wasn't, it kind of wasn't either of those things. Um, <laughs> I never intended to be a novelist or a writer. I was always a reader, massive, massive reader. But it just never occurred to me that I could be the person that could write these things. I thought that they were somehow very different to me and it was not something that I could do. So I never even considered it. My parents never suggested it. No one ever suggested it. So and I but I did do a tiny bit of creative writing at school, you know, when I was kind of 16 and doing English language um, and I enjoyed it. But that that was it and then when I was 40 so I didn't plan to be a writer at all but then when I was 40 I was doing some public art projects and they were things that were a real challenge and were completely out of my comfort zone and very difficult to do scary to do but the the feeling of having done them was so exhilarating that once I'd kind of finished this project that I was doing with my husband, um, I started looking for something else that would give me that feeling um, of the challenge, but also the kind of release after you've done it or the, yay, I did that feeling. <laughs> and, and I found in my library uh, an event called a short story slam, which anybody could sign up for. You had to write a short story that lasted no longer than five minutes when you read it out to the paying audience and the audience voted on their winner. And I, so I was 40 and I hadn't written anything no creative writing since I was 16 so it was a real challenge and reading it out was a real challenge yeah I was gonna say that sounds Just, terrifying but also was, amazing yeah it was it was terrifying absolutely terrifying and and the audience had to vote on their winner and if you were the winner you got a share of the doors takings and so I wrote my very first short story and I read it out and of course I didn't win and I probably wrote it out really really badly um, but this program ran for a couple of years and so I was writing short stories maybe every six weeks every couple of months reading them out I guess honing uh, yeah. honing my craft and and after a couple of years I did finally win and I got nine pounds 87 <laughs> <laughs> it was my first earnings from writing um, and then I thought, actually, well, I'm going to say, actually, I like this. Actually, I like having done it because I still find writing really difficult and I don't kind of like it. I like having done it. And so I decided to do an MA in creative writing. And I wrote our endless number of days on that course um, while I had children at home and I was full time job. So 
yeah crammed it all in amazing amazing so it's sort of started with a short story slam and ended with your first novel prize-winning novel I might add as well um and so once you had that first book in your hands did you knew did you know at that point oh okay I want to keep challenging myself to do this I want to keep turning up to do the next one well because it takes so long if you're traditionally published sometimes it takes so long for the book to come out that Penguin bought this first book and and it was kind of at that point uh, that I learned that it was going to be not be published for another 19 months so it was at that point I think that I thought am I going to write another book and and there is some pressure from you know if you get a literary agent if you get published by a large publisher or maybe even a smaller one they want to know what your next book is going to be. They don't want just a kind of one-off because it's also partly about selling the, the backlist and, and having a career. Mm. Um, so I started writing swimming lessons bef long before our Endless Number Days was published. So I'd finished the first draft of swimming lessons about the time that our Endless Number Days was published. And it was about halfway through writing swimming lessons that I thought, actually, this... I, I'm going to just try this and go for it. And I gave up the day job and started writing full time, um, which was a financial risk. But I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to try. I'm 48 now. I'm just going to see what happens. Um, and luckily, touch wood, it's paid off so far. Brilliant. Um, well, thank you so much. This was so interesting. I know you're still, the, the, the Women's Prize has been for those who don't know, has been extended this year because of COVID restrictions and things. Um, so you're still um, waiting for that big event. Um, but can you talk us from that, that the point of view of, of receiving a nomination for a prize like that, which really does put authors in front of a lot of readers. How has that experience been for you as a writer who's quite experienced now this is your fourth novel um but to sort of um get a lot more attention this book has got a lot of attention this year um quite rightly but i'm sure equally all of your other books have been fantastic has how did that feel to get to to, to be to now be having that attention at this point in your career oh well it is absolutely amazing because i i followed the women's prize or the baileys of the orange prize as it's been previously called for its its whole career because I've been a reader so for 26 years I've been looking at who won and trying to read the books and read the shortlist and and even have done after I was published done some public events around the uh, announcement of the women's prize so then suddenly to have your book on the list is is absolutely amazing um, but that I have to admit that there is a kind of tiny bit of me not that feels oh well what about the the previous three because you know it's 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 five judges who are picking these books and you pick another five judges they'll pick another mm -hmm. load of books you know no it's it's not kind of this is the best book it's this is the book that these judges have chosen so I understand you know why the other three you know maybe didn't make the list or the, even the long list um, but it's kind of like uh, you're 
three previous children and you yeah. kind of think oh <laughs> they're all special yeah they're all special <laughs> i love them all <laughs> um, so there's kind of some of that um you know so i love bitter orange just as much as unsalted ground you know that kind of silly <laughs> silly feeling um but aside from that it's it's just amazing and you're absolutely right so many more readers this book has reached so many more readers which is a, a lovely thing in itself you know just to be read more widely um just to see more people talking about it just to have more people fall in love with Jeannie it's I, know, you know, it's I a, really do just adore her I just yeah no I absolutely adore her I was I did a little I definitely did a little cheer when <laughs> you were announced from the long list to the short list because I think that was there's there was two books there's two books on the short list that I would have been absolutely devastated if it didn't make make it from the long list to the short list, and and um, yours was definitely mm. one of them. Yes. But um, but yeah, it must it must be a really interesting experience to be right in the thick of it, and then to have it extended as well. Um, well, I think in a way for me that's that's quite a good thing for Unsettled Ground because Unsettled Ground uh, was only just included because of when it was published it was published so late in the year that they oh, consider cool. yes yeah um so some books had been out for nearly a year which were on the long list or the short list whereas mine had been out for about a week um so in a way to have it on the short list to be shortlisted and still potentially a winner for longer is is perhaps better because oh, more good. people will read the book you know rather than yesterday whenever it was if if it didn't win then I think the shortlist books once you have a winner kind of obviously get slightly forgotten I guess all of the displays in the bookstores go away and, and yeah like yeah and it's all about the winner quite rightly so therefore to be potentially the winner for longer is probably <laughs> better <laughs> good I'm glad there's a I'm glad there's a big upside I'm glad there's a big upside well um, that was just oh, such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Um, Ali and I usually finish off the podcast with what we've been reading at the moment, something that's, that, you know, in the last few weeks that's been really interesting. What have you been reading lately? I've recently finished Fugitive Pieces. <gasps> oh, I've heard which, good I haven't read that yet and I've heard good things. Yeah, so I, I decided I would go back and look at some of the winners of the Women's Prize um, that, I, that I've missed out on for one reason or another and this was published in 1996 and it won the prize in 96 when and I, I worked out obviously it, it it won when I had an 18 month old and a newborn so I guess of course you probably, didn't read it that's probably why I didn't read it that would make some sense um but it is amazing oh so moving so beautifully written it's it's like kind of long form poetry mm. very very uh, tragic, very heartrending. I couldn't. I, it's definitely going to be one of my top ten reads of the year, without a doubt. I absolutely oh. loved it. I'm definitely going to ha have to dive in. Kate Moss was on the um, show recently, and that's one of her top three of all the Women's Prize of all time. Oh, yes. Just, yeah. Oh, I can yeah. see why. I can yeah. really see why. It's wonderful. Excellent. Well, I have read this past week um, Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid. 
And oh my goodness, it is such a good summer read. Uh, I haven't haven't read that. I've seen it everywhere on social media. It is, I can, yeah, it's definitely going to, it's going to be a big read of the summer, I think. It's it's that combination of being completely riveting. A very, it's a real family story with lots of different family characters in it and incredible dynamics. But also it's like a proper sense of deep sense of place and time in Malibu in 1983, um, which just completely sweeps you away. So, yeah, it, it was a complete joy. And I have not read Daisy Jones and the Six, which I know pretty much everybody else has. Yeah, no, I haven't read that it's either. Been that whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone says it's amazing. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Now I'm going to have to get to it. Like, can you read any author for the first time that you're like, oh, they have a backlist I can read? Yeah, I mean, for sure. It's amazing. So that has, that's definitely got me in summer mode, that book. That's for sure. Oh, that's um, nice. And I would highly recommend it if you need like a good, really engaging, but like really intricate family dynamics. Highly recommend. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and um, good luck for the um, announcement of the Women's Prize. I will definitely be watching. Um, And yeah, I hope hope the rest of the year goes well for you. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely lovely. You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can find show notes, including the best ways to get in touch with us, as well as any reading recommendations mentioned in the episode at nottoobusytowrite.com. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe. And please go ahead and leave us a little review. It really helps others to find the podcast. You can find Ali on Instagram at Ali underscore Miller underscore writes and Penny at Penny Windsor. Music and editing is by Ewan Miller McMeekin.